Hello and welcome to the ninth Patterns of Poetry talk. This is Julian Gerdham from the English Department of St. Columbus College in Dublin in Ireland. Look at our blog sccenglish.ie for lots more. Some topics, such as alliteration in talk three, can be reasonably neatly handled in a five-minute talk. Some, such as imagery, could fill hours. One of the virtues of the strict five-minute constraint of Audioboo is that you get what one of my colleagues calls a quick bite, and this can focus your mind on the issue, especially in one or two poems. Rhyme is the topic of this ninth talk, and quite obviously I'm not about to cover this comprehensively now, but rather to give you a little morsel to chew over. Once upon a time, as they say, virtually all poetry in English rhymed. In modern times, unrhymed or free verse has become much more widespread, though obviously there are plenty of poets who do use rhyme. I've been banging on throughout these talks on the importance of connecting technique and meaning, of not merely spotting an element or pattern of poetry, but showing how it works and, the key question, why the poet is using it. And today I'm going to use a modern poem, Thomas Kinsler's Mirror in February, to show this. This poem is familiar to generations of Irish men and women, being the final and most recent poem in their school anthology, Soundings. And it's back now with many other poems by Kinsler in the Leaving Certificate in 2012. Like all poems in these talks, you can link to it on our blog post. Mirror in February is a poem written by a man confronting, quite literally in the mirror, the reality of his ageing. I towel my shaven jaw and stop and stare, riveted by a dark, exhausted eye, a dry, down-turning mouth. By the end of the poem, he has to some extent come to terms with this inescapable reality. And I'd like to show you now how one element of the poem, the rhyme scheme, unobtrusively enacts this experience. In each of the three stanzas, the rhyme scheme goes like this for the first six lines, A, B, A, C, B, C. So in the first stanza, these words rhyme, rain and brain, air and stare, fantasy and eye. And then the seventh line ends, a dry down-turning mouth. So this sound, mouth, has, as it were, nowhere to go. It rhymes with nothing. It's left hanging in a rather lonely way out there on the edge of the stanza, looking around fruitlessly for a partner. The pattern is repeated in the second stanza, where in this case the word Christ doesn't match up with any other word. So overall, the rhyme scheme of those two stanzas is ABA, CBCD. Now, when you're reading a poem, you're not, I hope, saying to yourself as it moves along, ooh, lovely, interesting rhyme scheme. Rhyme operates at basement level, its effects being largely subconscious. So what effect is Kinsler aiming at in those first two stanzas? That last hanging rhyme, or rather non-rhyme, mouth, Christ, is unresolved, and subconsciously, at least, reinforces the whole mood and meaning of those stanzas. For Kinsler is writing about disappointment. He reads in the mirror, I have looked my last on youth, and concludes, They are not made whole that reach the age of Christ. He has not been made whole, and the rhyme scheme of the poem also refuses a satisfactory resolution. And then in the third and final stanza, there is a change. The first six lines are like the other two stanzas, 
but the final four read like this now. And how should the flesh not quail that span for span is mutilated more? In slow distaste I fold my towel with what grace I can, not young and not renewable, but man. He folds his towel with some grace, rather than flinging it into the corner. And now he's about to fold up the poem too. He has come to an understanding, not exactly happily, but he does accept his fate. And the rhyme scheme underscores this with that D-hanging word now joining a group. Sc span, can, man. And it's a strong monosyllabic rhyme. Can, man. Definite and clear. Meaning and technique come together as one. They mirror each other. Hello and welcome to the Patterns of Poetry talk number 10. Into double figures now. This is Julian Gerdham from St. Columbus College in Dublin in Ireland. Look at our blog sccenglish.ie for more. One thing to look for when you're thinking about a poem for the first time is repetition. Poets are ultra-careful when composing their work, in patterning their poems. And if they repeat words, it's unlikely to be because they can't think of any others, unlikely that their vocabulary is limited. So repeated words should get your antennae twitching. For instance, in Elizabeth Bishop's poem The Fish, which I also talked about in the second of these talks, she writes at one point, when looking at that fish, Here and there his brown skin hung in strips like ancient wallpaper, and its pattern of darker brown was like wallpaper. This repeated, like wallpaper, isn't a failure of Bishop's imagination. It's in fact precisely calibrated. She's determined to get it right, and in the poem there is a series of corrections, a refocusings of the lens, as it were. And that second, was like wallpaper, is her way of saying, yes, it was like wallpaper, I was right, that's the exact truth. And that's what the whole poem is about. Richard Murphy's poem, Moonshine, from his 1985 collection, The Price of Stone, uses repetition for a different effect. Again, here it is not that he can't think of any other words to use, but rather that, in a kind of kaleidoscopic effect, he looks at a handful of words in turn and sees how they react in different chemical combinations and teases out all sorts of meanings. This is a bravura performance, dealing in a very short poem with very complex thoughts about the nature of a relationship. And indeed it's so short that I can quote it all here now. So here's Moonshine. To think, I must be alone. To love, we must be together. I think I love you when I'm alone, more than I think of you when we're together. I cannot think without loving, or love without thinking. Alone I love to think of us together. Together I think I'd love to be alone. Just fifty-four words, and of these he obsessively circles round just a few. Think and thinking, alone, love, together and, of course, I and you. While saying that it's a skilful poem, I should say that its technique is completely justified in terms of meaning. As I've said, perhaps now ad nauseam in these talks, showing how a technique works is almost pointless without showing its purpose. In Moonshine, Richard Murphy is exploring a universal experience, 
The relationship can be both liberating and imprisoning. We can at once want to be with someone and wish to be free from them. This is a paradox and quite uncomfortable, and the poem reenacts this queasy truth. Repetitions are often a good way into the heart of a poem, whether isolated or part of a wider pattern. This has been Julian Gurdham from the English Department of St Columbus College in Dublin in Ireland. Look at our blog for previous talks. Hello and welcome to the 11th Patterns of Poetry talk. This is Julian Gurdham from the English Department of St Columbus College in Dublin. Look at our blog sccenglish.ie for more. Prompted by recently reading Don Patterson's introduction to his new book, Reading Shakespeare's Sonnets, A New Commentary, this talk is going, again in under five minutes, to examine briefly this famous 14-line form, perhaps the most used poetic form of all. In his introduction, Patterson writes, I've long been convinced that if you could somehow snap your fingers and destroy every sonnet on the planet, and wipe every sonnet from every human mind, it would reappear in almost exactly the same form by tea time tomorrow. And he adds, sonnets express a characteristic shape of human thought. Shakespeare was, of course, the most famous writer of sonnets. Well, all right, the most famous writer, full stop. Although his characteristic form, three quatrains, followed by a rhyming couplet, was in fact atypical. In the Leaving Certificate course, there are sonnets by Hopkins, Wordsworth, Dunn and Frost, but today I'm going to look at Patrick Kavanagh's poem, Epic. You can hear the man himself read it on the Poetry Archive site via the link on www.sccenglish.ie on today's post, 18th of October 2010. Here is a poem which shows off the form's versatility. The title is a kind of modest poetic joke. This epic, which is of course a long narrative full of heroic deeds and dramatic events, such as in the Odyssey or the one mentioned here, Homer's Iliad, turns out to fit into just 14 lines. The first four are I have lived in important places, times when great events were decided, who owned that half a rood of rock, a no-man's land surrounded by our pitchfork-armed claims. The dramatic figures of this epic from County Monaghan are the Duffy family and Old McCabe stripped to the waist. This is a sonnet in the familiar Petrarchan or Italian form. In other words, not divided twelve and two, like Shakespeare's sonnets, but eight and six. In this form, there is a distinction between the two sections, and the sestet usually heads off into a different angle or consideration or idea. Here, Kavanagh moves towards perhaps the central theme of all his work, that poetry comes out of the ordinary and transforms it into something extraordinary. Look at other sonnets he wrote, such as The Hospital, Canal Bank Walk, and lines written on a seat on the Grand Canal Dublin. The Munich Pact Crisis of 1938 is reduced to just a bother, and Kavanagh concludes, Homer's ghost came whispering to my mind. He said, I made the Iliad from such a local row. Gods make their own importance. And so the poem is completely achieved in its own brief space. Kavanagh has used the sonnet form to buttress his central belief. Anything, however apparently small, 
however apparently banal, is a proper subject of poetry. And why do so many poets use this form? Partly form itself is paradoxically liberating. The five-minute form for these audio boot talks is making my job a lot easier too. Back to Don Patterson's article on Shakespeare. Quote, like most poets, Shakespeare uses the poem as a way of working out what he's thinking, not as a means of reporting that thought. Then he'll use the sonnet as a way of making sense of it all. For centuries, poets have been using the sonnet form. As Don Patterson says, sonnets express a characteristic shape of human thought. This has been Julian Gardin with the 11th Patterns of Poetry talk. Lots more coming in the months ahead. Look at our blog, sccenglish.ie. Hello, this is Julian Gerdham from the English Department of St Columbus College in Dublin, Ireland, with the Patterns of Poetry Talk number 12 on punctuation. Here's another big subject I'm tackling in under five minutes, but the point of these talks is just as thought prompts. They're not supposed to be comprehensive. Punctuation is vital to language. When we're speaking, we punctuate naturally by pauses and pacing. Have a listen to Victor Borger's famous phonetic punctuation idea via the link on our blog sccenglish.ie for today 20th of October 2010 for a comic turn on this. One of the tricky things talking about punctuation is that you're not going to hear it but I certainly don't intend to try to emulate Borger. You can read today's two poems themselves via the links on the blog. Punctuation is often an interesting way into a poem. Emily Dickinson is famously eccentric in her punctuation, but her punctuation, it turns out, is actually central to her technique. Her poems are often obscure, always eccentric. She wrote once, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. And she uses punctuation as an instrument of her extraordinary effects. Specifically, the dash is central to this. She also uses capital letters in a distinctive way, sometimes as a kind of highlighter, picking out words. The poet and critic Tom Paulin has written this about Dickinson. These poems are impatient with rational control and unambiguous meaning. They push language to its limits and disrupt standard grammar, syntax and typography. Famously, Dickinson's early editors cleared up, cleaned up her punctuation. They did, according to Paulin, impose normative patterns on the poems. For instance, look at poem number 280 in the Thomas H. Johnson edition. By the way, she wasn't keen on titles either. Titles impose meaning. They're labels. Often they're not ambiguous enough. This poem starts, I felt a funeral in my brain, and mourners to and fro kept treading, treading, till it seemed that sense was breaking through. The nouns are capitalised, as they are in the German language. Funeral, brain, mourners, sense. And there are dashes after both uses of treading, and at the end of the stanza, after breaking through. Indeed, there are dashes at the end of almost every stanza, and also, most significantly, at the very end of the poem, when we really might expect a full stop. But the end of the poem is about how a plank in reason broke, and the narrator drops down and down, dash, until she, quote, finished knowing, 
dash, then dash. The whole point at the end of the poem is that whatever happens to the narrator, it's unknowable, she's finished knowing, and that the experience, whatever it is, is inexplicable, beyond words, and that it's not over. For Dickinson, dashes give us the sense of a mind working things out, a hesitancy, conditionality, a rawness and directness of mind and expression, a sense of discovering and experiencing. There are very few definitive full stops in her poetry. Finally and briefly, the late Edwin Morgan's famous poem Strawberries, an ecstatic and erotic celebration of a memorable sultry afternoon with his lover. This starts, There were never strawberries, like the ones we had that sultry afternoon, sitting on the step of the open French window. And in this whole poem, there is literally no punctuation, no dashes, commas, full stops. Now, this is not typical of Morgan, who normally punctuated his work in a relatively conventional manner. So why did he do it here? Well, my theme tune by now. Because form, or technique, and meaning need to be connected. Because he was trying to recreate that thrilling erotic afternoon. Because at the end of the poem... The storm washes the plates, and the poem too flows along, abandoned, unimpeded by punctuation. This has been Julian Gerdham from sccenglish.ie. More talks coming up. Hello, this is Julian Gurdon from St Columbus College in Dublin in Ireland. Look at our English department blog sccenglish.ie for more. Welcome back to the Patterns of Poetry series, which I started in September. We're now back after our half-term break, and ten days ago it was beautiful here in Dublin, the sunniest October for 40 years, according to the Irish Times. It was the very best type of Irish weather, crisp and clear and bright, in a word, autumnal. Now things are very different at the start of November. As I speak, outside it's gloomy at 3pm, with great sheets of rain sweeping across the sky. So this seems an appropriate time to talk about something that we see every now and then in a poem, foreshadowing. This is a technique that stories use frequently, but I'd like to take the opportunity now to look at how it operates by using probably the greatest English poem about this time of the year, John Keats's Ode to Autumn. As with all the works in this series, you can read the poem by clicking on the link in today's post for the 3rd of November 2010 at secenglish.ie. To Autumn was written in September 1819 and published in 1820. Foreshadowing is really one form of something that poets use all the time. That word pattern is useful here, less fancily hints could do too. In foreshadowing we see an example of the suggestiveness that is at the heart of all good poetry. I've stressed from the start of this series that poets are ultra-careful in constructing poems, in patterning them, and that as readers we need to be hyper-aware too, alert to all sorts of suggestions. To autumn starts, famously, richly, deliciously, season of mists and mellow fruitfulness, close bosom friend of the maturing sun, conspiring with him how to load and bless with fruit the vines that round the thatch eaves run, to bend with apples the mossed cottage trees, and fill all fruit with ripeness to the core. 
This is so gorgeous and luscious that it can lull us into an expectation that the poem will be a warm bath of poetic comfort. But even within these opening lines are the seeds of something else. The cottage trees are bent with apples, the fruit is ripe to the core. So what happens next? And in the second last line of this first stanza, he writes that there are more and still more later flowers for the bees until they think warm days will never cease. So they think they will never cease. This is a form of irony, since we, unlike the innocent bees, know that these warm days are not too far from ceasing. What is being foreshadowed, in a subtle way, is of course winter. You might also like to listen to the second talk on titles for some comments on foreshadowing in Robert Frost's poem, Out, Out. The second stanza of To Autumn presents the season personified in several ways. Listen to talk four about personification. Again, there are hints of what is to come. The swathe and all its twined flowers are spared from the hook, but for how long are they spared from death? And at the cider press there are the last oozings. However, it is in the final stanza that the poem hints at a darker future. Where are the songs of spring? Ay, where are they? Think not of them, thou hast thy music too. Well, you can't not think of something when someone tells you this. There are no lovely songs of spring now. Instead, a wailful choir with small gnats mourning. The landscape now has stubble plains. And the final line reads, Gathering swallows twitter in the skies. A sense of plenitude in the opening has been reduced to twittering. The swallows are gathering. For what? Well, for flight, for an ending. In Andrew Motion's words, Keats enlarges a sense of abundance by blending it with the certainty of decline and loss. We can't read to autumn without being conscious that next comes winter. And this poem is all the more poignant, because, like its companion odes to the Nightingale and on the Grecian Urn, all written in an astonishingly few months in 1819, it deals with time and the fragility of living things, and its writer, a young man in his mid-twenties, would be dead of tuberculosis within two years. Winter would come terribly rapidly to his own life. Hello, this is Julian Gerdham from the English Department of St Columbus College in Dublin in Ireland. Look at our blog sccenglish.ie for lots more. This is the 14th Passions of Poetry talk and attempts to deal, in just under five minutes, with one of the really important passions of poetry, a central way in which this art form attempts to communicate meaning, the metaphor. I suspect I might need more metaphor talks in future. I read an article in the New York Times recently, the link is on our blog post for today, 22nd November 2010, in which the author Robert Sapolsky examined the question of metaphor from a scientific angle, writing about what he calls a domain of unique human skills. To quote him, Symbols, metaphors, analogies, parables, figures of speech. We understand them. We understand that a captain wants more than just hands when he orders all of them on deck. We understand that Kafka's metamorphosis isn't really about a cockroach. We grasp that the right piece of cloth can represent a nation and its values, and that setting fire to such a flag is a highly charged act. And we even understand that June 
isn't literally busting out all over. Sapolsky goes on to explain, let me put it in layman's terms, that the same part of the brain, the insula, that deals with the literal also deals with the metaphorical, and that our understanding of metaphor is therefore instinctive and powerful, buttressed by visceral or gut reactions. Ooh, there's another metaphor. Basically, our brains can't help thinking metaphorically of associating one thing with another. And Sapolsky uses the metaphor himself when writing that, quote, evolution is a tinkerer and not an invention, and has duct-taped metaphors and symbols to whichever pre-existing brain areas provided the closest fit. Okay, so quickly out of science and back to poetry, before I get in trouble with my colleagues over at www.frogblog.ie. Metaphor is when we refer to or understand one thing in terms of another. It's not a simile, the partner with which it's often confused. In metaphor, something is not like something else, it is it. It's not that I run like the wind, it's as I run, I am the wind. The origins of the word go back to ancient Greek, meaning to carry across, to transfer, which itself comes from Latin and also means to carry across. I'm going to show how this is used now in just one metaphor, which is in the middle of Seamus Heaney's sonnet, The Forge. This early-ish poem recalls a blacksmith and his work from Heaney's childhood. What the man did and where he worked were fascinating, a dying craft by the time the poem was written. Heaney describes the old axles and iron hoop rusting outside the forge, and the anvil's short-pitched ring. And on line eight comes the metaphor I want to highlight today. He writes that the anvil must be somewhere in the centre, which is an altar where he expends himself in shape and music. What associations does this word, this metaphor, altar, trigger in our brains? Of something sacred, something holy. If the anvil is an altar, well then the forge is a church and the blacksmith is a priest. What he does is special. Why? Because it is a craft, honed by centuries of expertise, passed on from father to son. Because the blacksmith takes such care. Because he makes something lasting. Because in some sense for the child this activity is magical and mysterious. And the blacksmith himself is a metaphor for a poet. In two similar early poems, Heaney describes a thatcher who transforms, transforms straw with his Midas touch, and a diviner who can sense, quote, spring water suddenly broadcasting through a green hazel its secret stations. More metaphors there. You just can't help it. Metaphor is central to poetry, not merely a technical matter. When we engage with it, we are at the heart of what poetry does, firing our imaginations. Hello, and welcome to the 15th Patterns of Poetry talk. This is Julian Gerdham from the English Department of St. Columbus College in Dublin in Ireland. Look at our blog, sccenglish.ie, for more. Many thanks to all who voted for us in the International EduBlog Awards and made us runner-up last night in the Best Educational Use of Audio category for these short podcasts. If you're new here, just to say that this is a long-term project, and while this is the last talk of this year, there will be plenty more next. It seems appropriate for this talk, the 15th, 
to look at a Christmas poem. And I'll be using Patrick Kavanagh's work, A Christmas Childhood, to look at the literary device hyperbole. This is a figure of speech when you deliberately use exaggeration for effect. We use it instinctively all the time in ordinary speech. I was so embarrassed I nearly died. In Kavanagh's poetry, the ordinary is often elevated into the extraordinary. In, for instance, his poem Canal Bank Walk, an ordinary lock in the Grand Canal in Dublin roars niagarously, like Niagara Falls. And the bank of the canal is a Parnassian island, named after Parnassus, the mountain in ancient Greece where the Muses lived. In his poem Shanko Duff, the subject of the fourth of these audioboos on personification, modest hills in County Monaghan become the Alps, and his own black hill, the Matterhorn. In a poem well worth reading at this time of the year, called Advent, he searches for the kind of wonder he, and indeed we all, had in childhood. And the poem, A Christmas Childhood, starts in this sense of ecstatic innocence. One side of the potato pits was white with frost. How wonderful, how wonderful. And when we put our ears to the paling post, the music that came out was magical. So a very unpromising subject for beauty, a potato pit becomes wonderful, and the sound from the wires on the fence is magical music. In the words of his sonnet, The Hospital, Nothing whatever is by love debarred, the common and banal her heat can know. The second part of A Christmas Childhood, from stanza five onwards, uses hyperbole extensively. In these stanzas, Kavanagh recreates the childhood sense of wonder where everything seems extraordinary, in one of the most vivid recreations of this season in poetry. His father played the melodeon, and there were stars in the morning east, and they danced to his music. His mother milked the cows, and this was also music. The light of her stable lamp was a star, and the frost of Bethlehem made it twinkle. Later, the boy looks and sees how three wind bushes rode across the horizon, the three wise kings. For the boy at the time, of course, this was not hyperbole, but the adult poet uses these hyperbolic phrases to convey the fevered excitement and imagination of the six-year-old. Everything is heightened. Everything is extraordinary. So, that's me signing off with the last Patterns of Poetry talk for 2010. Join us again in 2011, and for the moment, without hyperbole, have a wonderful Christmas.